Hello and welcome to Bridges and Bottlenecks, a new podcast series brought to you by Energy Voice Out Loud in partnership with DNV. The UK Energy Transition Outlook predicts that the UK is not on track to achieve net zero. Technology exists that will be the bridge to take us there, but there are still a number of bottlenecks that stand in the way of progress. This series aims to tackle these challenges and highlight opportunities in the energy transition. In this episode, we'll be looking at our path to net zero and the business risk of climate change. I'm Ryan Duff, a reporter for Energy Voice, and joining me in this discussion is DNV's Head of Department for Markets and Risk, Vikan Shinnan, and EIC's Chief Executive, Stuart Broadley. How are we doing today, guys? Good, thanks. Great, fantastic. We, we were having a wee chat before before the podcast just about net zero goals and the way that the country's shaping up, the way we're sort of heading towards that target. There was a general consensus that we're we're a ways off. We're not going to hit these targets. Uh, do, do Let's maybe start there. Let's start broad and work in. So, Vikan, do you want to kick us off and tell us what you think about our targets to cut carbon emissions? Yeah, I mean... If we look to date where the UK is, the UK has done actually very well in reducing its territorial emissions. I mean, we've grown our economy by over 70% over the last, I would say, about 1990 to 2021. But at the same time, we reduced our emissions by around 47%, which is significant. And this has happened as a result of two things. One has been, there has been a lot of industry closures and the shift to a service economy. And the second change has been the fuel mix for electricity, the shift from coal to gas, and more recently to renewables. Now, last year we did uh, a UK energy transition outlook where we provided a single sort of best, our best estimate forecast of the energy future for the UK up to 2050. And our analysis within that report has shown that the UK will not meet its legally binding 2050 net zero target. Our forecast shows that the emissions 2050 will be around 110 million tons of CO2 equivalent, which implies a still significant 85% reduction relative to 1990 levels, but not the 100% that we legislated for in 2019. And there are two sectors where there are significant residual emissions. One is the building sector, where we still see a lot of natural gas being used for heating homes. Actually, we forecast 30% of final energy demand in the building sector will still be met by natural gas. And the second sector is the transport sector, where we still see a lot of petroleum products. And this is despite the penetration of battery electric vehicles, there will still be an existing stock of IC vehicles, particularly in the commercial sector that will be using petroleum products. In the aviation sector, there will be increase in e-fuels, but still significant use of jet fuels and same in the shipping sector while we will see penetration of ammonia and other biofuels we will still have a lot of ships being run on marine bunker fuel and lng so it's still quite a lot of work to be done in the buildings and transport sectors and if we look at the shorter term targets which is reflected in our nationally determined contributions that we submitted as part of the paris paris agreement we have committed to reduce our emissions by 68 percent by relative to 1990, by 2030. Our analysis shows that we will only achieve a 55% reduction. And to be honest, the UK is not alone in not being on track to meet its net zero target. This applies to 
most countries, I would say, globally. So we're good, but not good enough. And there are various reasons for it, transport and building to uh, the building sectors, to name a few. Uh, Stuart, EIC released a, a document earlier in the year sort of tackling a similar thing. You know, we're not ready for net zero. We're not on target. Do you agree with these points? And, you know, what else are the... The problems. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So, yeah, EIC is uh, Energy Trade Association, and, and uh, we've got 900 members. And every year, as you say, we we release a document. It's called the Survive and Thrive Report. It's an interview of of our members and what strategies they basically they like to use, they prefer to use to grow. Uh, it's called Survive and Thrive because, of course, energy markets are challenging, continue to be challenging. So it does sometimes feel like they're just they're working to survive, but I think increasingly they are working to thrive. Uh, when we do this analysis every year, of course, we see different strategies uh, that are preferred. Um, and right now, it's really interesting what we're seeing and somewhat surprising. What it's shown us is that there's a widening gap between the ambition uh, set by policymakers uh, around net zero uh, and what industry is actually doing uh, to bring that to reality. And, and I think there is an unfortunate uh, belief that it is industry that is kind of turning its eye away from net zero. And that's not what we're seeing. The industry is still excited in the economic opportunity of net zero, but also philosophically believe it is the right thing to do and would like to participate in in renewable and net zero and transition technologies as quickly as possible. Uh, But what our study shows, uh, and we've got a lot of evidence uh, to back this up, is that uh, increasingly companies are just not seeing opportunities coming through into their order intake associated with these kind of green technology opportunities. And so they're having to look elsewhere uh, to grow. And uh, one of the things that changes their, you know, year by year, uh, their strategies, of course, um, is what's happening in the macro environment. And of course, uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that absolutely changed the priorities of governments uh, from predominantly transition, which was all, of course, really brought to focus around COP26, to now energy security. And that still, in our view, is the number one priority of governments. Uh, energy transition has slipped down significantly into third place, uh, you know, with uh, security one, affordability two. And that's that's not helped, right? So what we're seeing now is our members, of which there were 96 companies all around the world, about half in the UK and half internationally. And as we can rightly say, this isn't just a UK issue, it's a global issue. Uh, companies all around the world moving increasingly to oil and gas, actually, uh, which might feel like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I think it's, it's, it's a reality of the security priorities of government right now to ensure that there are power and fuel, uh, you know, uh, guaranteed supplies. Uh, but it's also a reality that uh, we've had massive underinvestment in oil and gas, which is still you know, the linchpin of uh, the energy sector globally. And with massive underinvestment now for 10 years, uh, and then a rebound after COVID, and then a push around energy security, uh, there's just a huge amount of work now happening in oil and gas around the world, uh, both in large and uh, new CapEx projects and in operational maintenance and upgrades of existing infrastructure. And, and uh, that is happening. And it's absolutely happening because you look into our supply chain around the world and they are all busy in oil and gas. And they cannot find enough opportunities to grow at the same rate, anything like the same rate in renewable and transition sectors. And I think there is another problem uh, which we can come on to talk to is also even when they do uh, find work, uh, which they'd love to do, in renewable transition sectors, it's not profitable, uh, not as profitable as oil and gas anyway. So yeah, there's a number of factors which our evidence now is is 
really kind of backing up what Dickens is saying, but really with hard facts that uh, there's a growing gap now that's, that's definitely happening because the supply chain's just not seeing it. They're not seeing the transition come to reality. And if they're not seeing it, they're not investing uh, in transition technologies as policymakers hope and wish that they would. And of course, if you're running a business, you don't work on basis of hopes and wishes. You work on the basis of real opportunity. You have salaries to pay and, and interest payments increase need to pay as well. Uh, and uh, so without policymakers stepping in now and uh, forcing the adult discussion about this challenge, this isn't going to change anytime soon. So with socioeconomic climates are dragging us back to oil and gas with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and then businesses not finding profitable options within the energy transition, it's limiting sort of net, uh, net zero pathway. Is that a similar situation for the industries you spoke about, Viking? You know, we were speaking about transport and building, which obviously account for a massive carbon uh, emissions count as well. Is, is, there, is there a lack of business opportunity? I wouldn't say lack of business opportunities. I think just coming back on what Stuart says, I mean, where or why are we not on track? I think for me, there, there's four things that we see. One, Stuart rightly says, is that lack of policy clarity and policy certainty that businesses need to be able to invest and make plans for the future in the knowledge that UK policy will not suddenly change you know, from one day to the next. As an example, let's look at the retrofit sector for buildings. Yeah, we're talking about buildings, right, in order to improve the energy efficiency. If you look over the years, there has been several policy failures in that area and several policy reversals as well. I mean, as recently as uh, September 2020, the Green Homes Grant was launched, right? And that was scrapped only six months later. Now, how does a small business get confidence in investing in terms of, you know, building out in terms of the workforce and so on, if it is not confident that these type of schemes will carry on for a while in order you know, to deliver a return on that investment. Let's, let's not forget, a lot of these companies are also SMEs who do not have a very strong balance sheet. So they need that policy certainty in order to invest. And now today, the government has been you know, uncertain about the case for onshore wind. It's been on, off. Where is that going? And if you look at the media these days, you would see discussions around the ban on IC vehicles, the new sales of new sales of IC vehicles by 2030. They are looking to push that further into the future. You know, this type of uncertainty is not good for business. And that's one of the things the government need to be sure, the policy clarity, policy certainty. The second thing, uh, you know, for me is that we're still taking a very incremental approach to the energy transition and letting, in most cases, the market or the customer decide on the way forward. This is not going to work if you want to deliver net zero by 2050. You really need to move from an incremental, incremental to a transformational approach to the energy transition and provide more support for the low carbon technologies in order to shape the UK energy system. And Stuart rightly says a lot of the technologies today are not profitable and so they need more financial support, but also the other thing that is causing a major bottleneck is the planning and permitting system, right? And if you take offshore wind, for example, right? So the UK has set a target of 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. In 2021, we had, we had around 11 gigawatts. If we look over the past five years, what has been the build-out rate for offshore wind? It's about a gigawatt per year. Now you're talking you need to make 4 gigawatt per year in order to get to 50 gigawatt in 2030. That's a significant rampant rate. And yet, what do we see in the market? We see delays in projects, and we see projects being stopped 
I mean, recently, Vattenfall stopped the project off the Norfolk coast, citing a lot of increased costs for turbine, for labor costs, and so on, and financing costs has gone. So we need to recognize if we are going to get to net zero, these companies need a lot more support. We just can't stop. You know, end of the day, if we are going to get to net zero, offshore wind is going to be one of the key generation technologies that will define it. So we need to support those low carbon technologies. The third thing for me is the kind of lack of joint of thinking or system thinking that we need to see. The government has a lot of great initiatives and great targets. Yeah. However, where's the clear action plan to deliver on those targets and initiatives? And I think that is what is missing. What you need is basically a supply chain that is well-resourced and resilient. You need a skilled workforce to coordinate and store the technologies. You need a customer base that is prime and ready to provide the demand. And you need access to financing. And that has been the issue for a lot of these initiatives where all these components haven't really come together to deliver a successful implementation. Let's take again the example for heat pumps, right? So the government has the boiler upgrade scheme that provides 450 million of funding from 2022 to 2025 to install uh, heat pumps. That is roughly about 90,000 homes we're talking about. We're funding about 5,000 pounds per home. Uptake has been slow. To date, there's only been around 10 to 11,000 heat pumps installed and has been beset by some issues. There's been a lack of promotion of the scheme to consumers. There's been a shortage of heat pumps installers. There's been insufficient independent advice for homeowners. Overall, if you look at the heat pump installed in 2022, there's been around 55,000. Right? By 2028, the government wants to get to 600,000 heat pumps installed on an annual basis. That's over a tenfold increase in heat pump installation over the next six years. What's the plan to, to deliver on that? Now, if you take on an energy system level as well for the broad energy infrastructure, if you look over the next decade, there'll be an electrical infrastructure revolution requiring vast amount of new electrical equipment and cabling. Now, a lot of that equipment and cabling require long lead times, and there's only very few companies globally who manufacture those. What's the plan to deliver on this? And finally, the, the last thing which we need to talk about and is not really being handled well by the government is societal engagement. We need broad engagement with society at large to communicate the net zero strategy and its implications, and also how the government plans to make it a just transition by supporting low-income households. If you look at the CCC, over 40% of the measures to deliver on net zero requires public support, whether it is on energy efficiency, whether it is on lifestyle changes, or on modal shifts and reduction in transport demand. So we need to act on all these fronts in order to be able to deliver. So you're listening to your piece there, Vic, and it sounds an awful lot like there's lack of support, Policy, 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 and uh, lack of rollout. You know, we've we've seen delays. Yeah, like you pointed out with the uh, Vattenfall on the Norfolk coast for for wind and uh, lack of grid connection. Um, we're yeah, we're looking at lack of uptake in heat pumps, and CCUS is considered to be a, a lichpin of of the whole net zero strategy in the UK. But we're seeing a slow rollout of that as well. You know, track two waited for ages before we got uh, Viking and Acorn approved. Is this something that's is a problem, Stuart, that slow rollout of, 
infrastructure? Uh, so let's use some data, shall we, to answer that question. Uh, so EIC has a lot of data on all the world's main energy projects. We track 13,500 projects that are in the development phase at any one time, worth 13.5, coincidentally, trillion dollars worth uh, projects. Um, these are projects that are either announced but not yet funded or just funded or right the way through into the commissioning phase, just about to be handed over. It's really interesting, right, when you sort of track something called the financial investment decision the, the FID, the point at which that project is 100% funded, that kind of is when it's real. Everything else is ambition and dream. You could argue driven by policy, but but not funded. And maybe that's one of the ways to, to clarify the problem here is the funding. And let me explain this. The FID rate, financial investment decision rate, uh, is something that we track actively across all these projects. And you can break it down by sector. If you take all the oil and gas projects that are out there today, which in volume terms are only equivalent to about 30% of all the projects we track, but is 70% of all the value that we track. So that's kind of one of the interesting things. The typical oil and gas project is worth a lot more than the typical renewable project. There's vastly you know, increased numbers of renewable projects. That's why it feels like every day we read more about green projects in the press than we do about oil and gas. Uh, but the average value is a lot lower. Uh, but what's really interesting is these oil and gas projects, which are about 70% of the overall value of the world's energy opportunities, about 20% of them are funded today. And you might say, that doesn't sound very high. Well, 20% is relatively high, and I'll come on to explain that. Um, but we think it may go up quite a bit, actually, because a lot of the big mega projects around the world, oil and gas-wise, are still waiting for the go-ahead. But with this massive infrastructure delay or lack of investment in the last 10 years, we think they will go ahead. Uh, but anyway, currently 20%, and that's upstream, midstream, downstream, includes LNG, added together, average about 20%. How does that compare, then, to, for instance, offshore wind? Icon was talking uh, eloquently around the importance of offshore wind in the UK and actually all around the world. And that's, a, of course, a loss-making sector. The, all the manufacturers and offshore wind are famously all loss-making. Why would they invest uh, now with increased uh, interest rates making it even harder for them right now? Well, let's look at how many of those projects are actually financed right now. It's 8% of the world's offshore wind projects that have been announced are only 8% are financed. And right now, as Viken said, projects are actually being pulled that were previously announced as financed. We might see offshore wind go into negative FID rates this year, uh, which would be unprecedented. Now, that's the scale of the problem. But what's really important here is if you look at these COP26 targets and commitments that countries made around the world, those countries lucky enough to have coastlines made offshore wind the linchpin of their of their net zero journey. And yet we're only at 8%. So how can it be that the world's COP, COP assumptions are largely based around offshore wind from a renewable power point of view, uh, and yet... Uh, only 8% is funded, and that's going backwards. How can it be? Now, you talk then about uh, carbon capture in the UK and a few other places in the world, which is also the linchpin, supposedly. Uh, I don't know if you want to have a guess at the FID rate for carbon capture. Uh, well, let's do the better one. Let's do hydrogen first. It's 3%. 3% of the world's hydrogen projects are funded. Carbon capture, want to have a guess? Oh, I, I, I'm scared. I'm terrified. It's 2%. It's 2% of the world's carbon capture projects are actually funded. Uh, floating offshore wind, 1% of the world's projects announced are funded. So it's, uh, it's just not real. Right? It's a dream right now. From a funding point of view, it's not real. If you're in the supply chain, which is, we all know that's where the innovation, that's where the investment, that's the capacity, that's where the skills are, or have to be for this to become real, uh, there's just nothing there. And, if, and yet every company knows from a shareholder point of view, from a staff point of view, from a business value point of view, if they can say, we have a hydrogen project, their value goes up, the staff are happier, their engagement with the, all their stakeholders improves. So everybody's rushing to try and win 
one of those rare hydrogen or carbon capture floating offshore wind projects and increasingly rare offshore wind projects, uh, even though they know they'll probably lose money doing it uh, because their business value goes up. So you have this strange situation where oil and gas valuation of your business is not as high as a renewable valuation, but oil and gas is a profitable business that actually pays salaries, bills, you know, whereas renewables doesn't pay salaries and bills. It's a strange, it almost needs an adjustment anyway, you could argue from that point of view as well. But in the meantime, yeah, I'm afraid this data is hard, real data, uh, which, which for me highlights uh, not the issue just of sort of policy, 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 but courage, right? What do I mean by that? There isn't a single energy minister in the world yet who has put his hand up or her hand up and said, I think we're going to miss our targets. I'm sorry. No one said it yet. Why not? Uh, and yet we all increasingly know from an industry point of view, this ca- these targets cannot be met, certainly not the interim 2035 targets cannot be met, arguably, and the DMV data clearly shows this, and there's increasing reports around the world saying this, and our data says it, and yet not a single energy minister currently has the courage. They would say the data, but we all have the data now to, to make them surely accept that they now have put up their hand and say, we're in, we're in trouble with our targets, our commitments. Uh, and it's only them, we believe, that can pull everybody back in a room and say, okay, we're in trouble as a community, we have to work on this now. Instead, all we hear is, no, we are still going to hit our targets and we will have another acceleration plan, uh, we promise, trust us. What it actually is, is what it feels like anyway, is a lack of accountability around the world, the gap between a promise, see, there is no measure, is there? who measures this? So what we actually hope is something called the global stock take, uh, which is going to happen at COP28 this year. And this is a UN-derived process where for the first time country commitments to achieve net zero will now be independently assessed. And there will be reporting, supposedly, at COP28 on that. And that may be, I hope, the first time a league table is published, if you like, those countries furthest ahead and furthest behind on the, against their targets. And perhaps that's the first time then ministers will have to come out and say, yeah, okay, we do have a problem. But I actually even worry with COP28 with, to- with so many, you know, sort of... Uh, so many people that have to sign up to anything that they declare publicly, that may also get delayed uh, or watered down. So for me, this is courage, courage, courage. Come on, everybody. Let's, have, let's, let's get the policymakers pleased to now talk about this problem. And uh, So far, none. Listening to that, it's, it's terrifying the numbers, frankly. The, uh, the comparison between oil and gas and our re- renewables and carbon capture sector is just uh, staggering. But, you know, you're speaking courage, 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 and policymakers aren't raising their hands and saying, do you know what? This isn't going our way. It's maybe not how we predicted. And the evidence is mounting, right? The evidence is going towards we're not meeting our targets and neither are XYZ country, you know, it's more than just the UK. But Vikan, do you think policymakers are just scared to admit? Is that maybe the problem? Just scared to go, do you know what? We got this wrong. We haven't doubled down the way we should have. Well, there, there are independent bodies, certainly in the UK, that uh, of, uh, tracks how the UK is doing on net zero, such as the Committee on Climate Change, and it provides a status report. And in that status report, it very clearly states that the UK is not on track to deliver net zero. And also earlier this year, you see there was the Skidmore report that was done by the MP Chris Skidmore as well. And in there as well, again, the report clearly states that the UK is not on track 
they do a net zero. And he, he mentions a lot of these issues that I've already talked about, about the kind of policy, clarity, policy, certainty, and also the kind of like joint up thinking that needs to happen, especially across the various government departments as well. Look, end of the day, politics is politics. I think we need a, a totally agree with what Stuart said, an adult discussion. And can we get you know, all a cross-party agreement on the energy policy for the UK? I think we can all keep you know, thinking that uh, hopefully someday the politicians will come together and say this is beyond party politics. And we need to sit down and craft a strategy to move forward and get us to net zero. But until such time, you need to you know, stay with the government of the day and, in, and sort of try to push that uh, message out there, farm industry as well, about what is required to deliver net zero in that context. And I'll come back again on that policy clarity and policy certainty. The second point is around reforming the planning and permitting system. That is so important as well. We need to recognize that certain technologies are in the overriding public interest. And we need to actively support those technologies. And that support needs to happen on the financial side, you know, on the social side as well. It needs to be economically viable. It needs to have the right funding schemes in place as well in order for companies to invest in them. And the third thing is about a net zero delivery authority. I think we mentioned that in our energy transition outlook. If you look back at the Olympics, when we held it in London in 2012, we had the Olympic Delivery Authority, you know, that uh, set it all up, that you know, organized the whole thing and had a clear plan, clear focus on how to deliver this. Similarly, we need a body that can take hold of this and say, okay, we have all these targets, all the different initiatives, what is required for each of these to move forward in order to make sure the policies are there, the technology is there, it is economically viable, there is proper source of funding, and there is social engagement on all these different initiatives and targets as well. So we need this kind of net delivery, net zero delivery authority as well to sit at the heart of the net zero. And finally, public engagement, absolutely key to deliver on this. We've seen what happened in Whitby, where there was local community opposition to the hydrogen trials there as well. And this is not for hydrogen, probably all the technologies we've seen, you know, what happened with onshore wind as well. So there needs to be public engagement in order to be able to deliver on that net zero. And that will require a massive campaign of education as well as independent bodies that can provide trusted advice to people. It, it, that's, you've raised some interesting points there, but I think the thing that stood out to me the most, Vikan, is the fact that that word policy has been brought up again. It seems to be coming up ev- with every answer, every this uh, talking point we've had so far. So I think sticking with the theme of bridges and bottlenecks, we're wanting to ask the hard-hitting questions within our net zero journey. I think it's important to maybe touch on politics, the thing that you don't speak about in polite company. We've we've experienced some conflicting views, frankly, in the, in the UK, just this year alone. You know, earlier in the year, the Labour Party said that there'd be no new oil and gas licences granted if, if it were to, to win the next general election. And yet the Tories are on the complete flip side of that, saying that they're going to grant hundreds of new licences. And Grant Shapps saying that he would want to grant every conceivable licence in the North Sea. Is this sort of political tug of war almost part of the reason we're seeing firms shy away from net zero you know i don't know what the the country's going to be supporting in four years time Stuart, what do you think uh, well firstly i don't think firms are shying away 
from net zero. I think that's probably not the way I would describe it. They're just not seeing enough opportunity. They want to be in net zero. If you speak to business leaders, both philosophically and economically, they see this as an energy revolution, an industrial revolution, an opportunity to grow their business, to invest in exciting new opportunities, to recruit and develop teams and capabilities that they've always dreamt of having. So they're incredibly disappointed, actually frustrated that they're just not coming through as opportunities in their business yet. I think they will eventually come through, just not at the pace and scale that policymakers are promising. So I think that's the first thing I would say. The other thing I would say, though, in terms of you know, politics, so again, let's use some data, right? So uh, EIC has data on uh, many of the world's energy supply chain hubs, uh, and not just you know how many suppliers there are in the energy supply chain, but what detailed capabilities they have. So in the UK, for instance, there are three and a half thousand companies tracked by us. Uh, so these are all the companies in the UK energy supply chain. Uh, that's defined as companies with a million pound or more of revenues. It's actually about 10,000 if you include a long tail of very small companies, consultants, and so on. Right, 3,500 companies, uh, you can analyze them quite easily to then look at, well, how many of those are in oil and gas and how many of those are in renewables? And I think the government policy would lead you to believe that they are very separate groups of companies. And therefore, it's easy for them to say, right, we're going to have a policy that makes it hard for the oil and gas supply chain to continue to invest in oil and gas. And we're going to force them to jump ship and move over into renewable supply chain. I kind of feel like maybe that's what they were thinking when they started putting in place policies to not support oil and gas related business in the UK. UK, by the way, has the harshest policies around not supporting oil and gas supply chain businesses. There is zero support to help those companies do exports around the world to get export finance. So it's actually, we have a non-competitive policy compared to every other country around the world in the energy supply chain. But what's unfortunately the case, and of course the data is always much more powerful than uh, you know, I guess the hyperbole is there is a massive overlap between an oil and gas group of supply chain companies and a renewable group of supply chain companies. 3,000 of the 3,500 companies in the energy supply chain in the UK are reliant on oil and gas. And of those, there are about 1,000 in the 3,500 that are in the renewable sector. And 800 of those that are in the renewable sector are also in the oil and gas sector. So in summary, we don't have separate supply chains. It's one integrated supply chain. And when the government puts in policies to, to let's call it punish, oil and gas supply chain, even though, of course, they have been encouraged by the UK government for the previous 50 years to become world-leading oil and gas companies, which they really are, suddenly they'd say, nope, we don't like you anymore uh, in policy terms. Uh, we're not going to help you export. We're not going to help you raise finance, uh, which is incredibly negative. Uh, destructive action to take, not helpful, not consistent with what other companies, other countries around the world are doing. All they're actually doing is hurting the renewable and transition investment as well, because it's the same companies. Uh, and we know it is because it's also, when you look at the operators around the world, they're also the companies who are largely in oil and gas, who are now trying to move as fast as they can also into transition and renewable sectors. Um, so it's the same customers largely. There are some new developers, of course, around renewables as well. Um, but it just doesn't make any sense to think about this as two completely separate groups of communities. They are There's an 80% firm overlap between them. Uh, so you have to think of it as a policymaker. So go, I've got one group of, I've got one community of supply chain businesses here. I can't have a policy that, that hurts 80% of them uh, because clearly then they don't have enough investment and money and financing to be able to drive the transition that they all want to do. And I think that's one of the major issues. And one of the things we would call on the government to do is to 
is to soften or even reverse that that uh, hard ban on the support of those oil and gas companies to get funding and export support because it's anti-competitive uh, and it's damaging to those businesses. Uh, and ultimately, of course, it's directly slowing the investment that they could be and should be making in net zero. So lack of government support going towards oil and gas is actually maybe maybe to some people, maybe looking from the outside, uh, we counterintuitively impacting our transition to net zero, our scale up of things like offshore wind and uh, maybe solar rollout or you know various other um, energy transitional technologies. Vikan, do you agree? Should we be promoting? Like, should we be saying to the government, "Listen, loosen the reins on oil and gas, help them out," because frankly, these companies are the companies that are going to get you to net zero. Overall, I think if you look at it, oil and gas will still be part of the transition. I mean, this transition is going to take many years for it to unravel. And so you will need all these technologies to work together in the meantime in order to deliver uh, the net zero strategy that uh, we are all looking for. So in terms of energy security in the short term and affordability, probably the oil and gas licenses that we're talking about, they won't come online until, you know, quite a few years down the line anyway. So in the very short term, it won't sort of make a Material difference, but in kind of immediate medium term, as we go over the next couple of decades, it will add a bit to the energy security. But let's not forget, ultimately, you know, true energy security and affordability will come from renewables, from deployment of renewables. And as Stuart Ruddy says, you need to support the companies that service this whole sector. And a lot of times, when we do a lot of analysis for our customers as well, into the market uh, for uh, renewable companies as well, a lot of the companies that uh, go out and uh, uh, you know, uh, service the equipment, for example, and provide support to the renewable industry. They do the same for the oil and gas industry as well. So it is there is significant overlap between the two as well. So I totally agree. It needs to be a synergistic approach where we look at the broader context. And again, this comes to the other point I was making earlier. It's about the system thinking. You know, you cannot look at any anything in isolation. You need to look at all these technologies together because when you pull a lever one way, something else will move somewhere else as well and you need to look at these interdependencies within that very complex energy systems that we have and it will stay complex as we move forward as well as we shift from oil and gas to the renewable technologies as well they all need support at different points in time and the amount of support will vary as we go along that pathway to net zero do you know what there's not been uh, much debate on this podcast not that there should have been not that there has to be it's just it's quite interesting to hear both uh, yourself, Vicken, and Stuart being so on the same page, coming like looking at different numbers from two different reports, both saying the same thing. It seems like evidence is just mounting up to this maybe somewhat hard to swallow pill that we're nowhere near net zero. We're nowhere near as close as we should be. You know, we might we might have made a decent impact in our carbon emissions, but it's not enough. You know, and we're seeing the impact of this, right? Globally, you know, Europe's burning and we're seeing these Im- this these shocking images coming from uh, Greece. What type of impact is that even ha- having on businesses? You know, we're seeing the, the real-world effects of climate change, you, you just need to look out your window and you see it, you feel it, you know. How is that impacting firms? We'll start with you, Stuart. I, I would encourage uh, policymakers to go out and speak to more businesses. Uh, part of the challenge when they're trying to understand how businesses approach things like the reality of climate change, you know, are they connected or disconnected to it, is the policymakers tend to speak to the same half a dozen 
largest businesses in their countries, not just in the UK, around the world, they tend to speak to a small community of large businesses, and that's how they get the view on what industry thinks. And uh, of course, what they should be doing is speaking to a much wider network of different types of companies, different sizes, because it's the entire supply chain that will drive the transition, not just a few big players. My view, having spoken to hundreds, maybe thousands of companies over the last five years on this topic is, I haven't found a single company that is philosophically disconnected from the concept of net zero and climate change. Why? Because it's not just about an economic opportunity. It's about the fact that they all live in communities, they all have families, they all have staff, you know, they all have shareholders and customers who, who are increasingly worried about the world we live in and, and the fact that there's no planet B. Uh, I don't see any companies who are ignorant or, or ignoring or, or feeling like that's not their problem, it's somebody else's. They all want to participate. They all want to be part of the solution. Uh, companies of all you know, types and sizes, some service companies, some technology companies, they all feel like they have something to offer here. But what are they supposed to do when they're not seeing any opportunities coming into their businesses directly? So what they do is they have ESG policies, sustainability policies, they, they have communication campaigns, they... They do their best to say, I have won one project, you know, that was a scrape, but I managed to find one. They don't talk about the fact that it wasn't profitable, but that, that then becomes their way of saying, look, I'm, I have, a, you know, a diverse business and I, I'm, I'm active in hydrogen. So many companies, aren't they, saying We're, we've got activity in hydrogen, uh, but scraped by the surface. Uh, they would have to admit it's very little activity, though, because there's so little out there. So I think everybody would say that they want this issue to be addressed and they care passionately about what they're seeing on the television and what the staff tell them and the families tell them about, come on, why can't we do more? But it's not realistic for companies to do more if they just can't engage in business activity linked to it. And that's how business works, right? They need orders to justify investments, to drive innovation, to train staff, to build facilities, to encourage investment and exports around the world, to drive the collaboration you're driving. It, it all starts with there has to be something real to get started, to get working on. There are some companies, uh, and the minority of companies, but some that have really gone full on into net zero space, even with that little amount of opportunity that there is, and they've really gone for it. And, you know, they, I think, are interesting companies to talk to because they're living every day this balance of its low margin but we're focused on the future philosophically we've committed our whole business to this uh, but the vast majority don't see enough opportunities to make that shift yet uh, so yeah i think the next step again it back to we need policymakers to open the door to a wider range of people that they talk to and hear from around what's really happening out there because i think perhaps policymakers haven't yet in my view shown the courage to talk about the problem we have because they're talking just the same tempo players all the time who perhaps are not giving them the same sense of urgency and so i think as part of this uh you know we've got to have the adult discussion and widen the net get many more people involved in that and that's what we're trying to do as eic you know we're so we're globally a voice of the energy supply chain globally uh and mo normally the voices that get to policymakers are not supply chain based they're sector based or region based and i think they're all giving part of the story and it's very interesting when you look at the entire supply chain you get a much more joined up uh story that that doesn't have a view that's linked to one policy bias or another. It's just industry at large, you know, people at large, uh, and you know, their passion around this and their inability to actually move right now. Yeah, who'd have thought it? If you speak to everyone, you actually get all the information. <laughs> but yeah, Vikan, let's, let's go to you. I'm going to field the exact same question that I just gives Stuart. Climate change, how is it impacting businesses both in the UK and 
globally? Yeah, I think we, we work with a lot of uh, companies and investors as well, uh, advising them on acquisition and divestment of assets. And over the last few years, I would say what we've seen is that a key determinant in valuation of an asset of companies is whether it has a credible transition plan to decarbonize its operation, get to net zero. And we have worked with many boards of companies to actually develop those transition plans that feed then into some robust strategies and short, medium term and long term milestones. As Stuart says, companies want to do this. They are putting the transition plans together. But Having gone through a lot of this process and having advised a lot of these boards on how to transition and the switch they need to make from high carbon technology to low carbon technologies, what it depends on is a whole infrastructure around it to be present as well to support that transition. Give an example. We were working with a company recently having a lot of gas-fired uh, technologies and waste-to-energy sort of technologies as well, right? So to decarbonize, the only way for them, for some of these, is to, is to have carbon capture technology in place. But the company itself is not going to put the pipeline, you know, to, to transport the carbon. You're not going to have the storage for the CO2. Someone else needs to build that and to provide that infrastructure for them then to be able to capture that carbon. So it's not just dependent on the company itself. It's dependent on that broader support from other companies and from the government with that framework in place for that transition plans to become a reality. And that's what's missing at the moment. Again, it comes back to that system thinking I talked about earlier. The other aspect that you mentioned very rightly is the physical impact of climate change. Climate change is no longer a threat that looms over the distant horizon, but it's actually happening right now. We've seen you know, what's happening in Europe, in the US, everywhere. You know, the floods, the drought, the wildfires, the extreme temperatures. We also advise a lot of companies on the physical climate risk. And over the last few years, actually, we've done a lot of analysis for their own direct operations, what are the hazards that they will face increasingly over the years, and how they need to adapt their operation. That's one thing we're not talking a lot about as well, is adaptation. You know, we have the climate mitigation, we have the net zero, but at the same time, climate change is already a reality. And we need companies to be thinking about, you know, a lot about adaptation measures for the operations. And it's not only about their own direct operations, but also on the broader value chain, because that will disrupt their operations as well, right? Create massive impact on the revenue. If they can't get their product or raw materials in to produce the products that they need to sell as well. So they need to look, see how resilient is the whole supply chain and also both upstream and downstream as well. And what we see is that a lot of companies are now moving from kind of the just-in-time approach to the just-in-case approach, you know, in order you know, to build in that resilience into their business plans. The other thing we've seen already happening, we work with a lot of insurance companies again to advise them on climate hazards, insurance premiums will go up, right? And that will impact the bottom line of companies. There's also potential for increased litigation from NGOs if companies don't have the right plans in place as well. So this is a lot of these will start cascading and put more pressure on companies as well, both from a transition point of view and also from a physical point of view. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much for 
for that. That was a really insightful uh, answer there, Vicken. I could talk to you guys about this all day, and I'm not just saying that because we're on this show. It's genuinely a very exciting and somewhat terrifying. I said it earlier. It's it's, it's a slightly scary topic, you know. Um, but it is so massive, and we could address this over all six episodes of this series. But unfortunately, we are going to have to call it time at some point, and I think that time is fast approaching. So I've got got in my notes here that I'd ask for some closing remarks. I think we're going to ask for. Maybe your your key takeaway from today. Uh, Stuart, do you want to start? Uh, I think there's a growing um, alignment across stakeholders, isn't there? Uh, that it's time for the adult discussion and it's policymakers that have to lead that. I think, though, it will be COP28 and the global stop taking that will drive that. So first thing I've taken from today is, though, that, um, you know, that, that increasingly... Uh, whoever you speak to, you know, shares the same view now that these targets that we keep hearing, the policymakers and the press putting out the same messages, we don't listen to that anymore. We only listen to the actual work we're seeing coming through our doors. I think the second thing I would say, though, is that this is an incredibly exciting industry to be in. I've never seen an opportunity or a series of opportunities like, I mean, in our business and the members we're talking to, I've never seen a market like this. Almost every market around the world is doing well, arguably booming, uh, all at the same time. Right. So I think that the other thing that's going to come is imagine if the policymakers do manage, you know, manage to magically address these concerns that we're all now sharing and accelerate the pace of net zero. How would we do that? Because we've already got, you know, skills concerns across the industry. Some would say a skills crisis, although we think it's it's not yet at a skills crisis, but it wouldn't take much, would it, to then move us straight into a capacity crunch uh, and just then have, okay, now no one's got the excuse anymore to say that the policy's not right and the funding's not right and the flow of business isn't coming through now come on supply chain let's get you moving and i think that'll immediately become the next problem uh so it's back again to i think uh, we need a joined up approach here we've got to get everybody in a room it's not just enough to say we agree there's a problem it's not just enough to suddenly get some you know some marble moving again at the front which gets things moving the whole thing's got to be planned out in a structured way so combination of very exciting opportunity what a future we have if we can just work together in an adult way uh, but I do right now feel that that's not what we're doing and instead we're, we're seeing a lack of courage from policymakers uh, to uh, to raise this topic and until that happens then this problem is going to get worse and what about you Vic and what what are you wanting to say uh, to take us home at the uh, the end of the first episode of bridges and bottlenecks yeah, I think, look, I think global governance matters. I think uh, we all will see what happens at COP28 this year. I think we, we need that global governance, overarching global governance, to shape the direction of travel as well and feel that the UK is part of it and, and is leading part of that as well. Net zero is going to present a lot of risk, but also a lot of opportunities for, for businesses. And we need to be able to grab those opportunities as well. But in order to grab those, we need that policy clarity and that policy certainty from the government of the day as well. And I think this is the key thing. And finally, I would say apply system thinking to everything we are doing. It's all technologies we need to get us home in order for us to deliver on that net zero. Not it's, There's no silver, single silver bullet out there. We need to use everything because we are up against it. So let's use everything we've got 
uh, in order to get us home. Perfect. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and with that, the first episode of Bridges and Bottlenecks comes to an end. Thank you, Vikan and Stuart, for joining me. We've tackled some big topics within the energy transition today, starting as we mean to go on. If you've enjoyed this episode, keep an eye on your podcast platform of choice, as next time we'll be looking into grids and storage, enabling, not blocking. Thank you very much for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.